0: Good morning, good morning, Rabbutai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is sponsored by Desiree and Elad in celebration of the birth of their son, Mabruk and Mazaltov. As well, the week of Kobru is dedicated in loving memory of Sami Rivka, uh, sponsored by his son, Isaac Said. You know, my friends, our parasha begins this journey into the journey of korbanot, of sacrifices. And the concept of sacrifices of korbanot in general is something. Uh, which is esoteric, it's removed, it's, uh, it's something which we don't understand, we don't necessarily relate to, but at the same time, it makes up a huge portion of, uh, of, the, of the Torah's obligations. So when we read about the holidays, we read about all the sacrifices that they brought. We read about the Chanukat uh, HaMezbeach, we read, you know, 12 different Nisim. we read them during the Chodesh of Nisan as well. So there's all these different, so much time and space, in Torah is dedicated to sacrifices and to the korbanot that it's important for us to understand that the korbanot themselves um, were obviously a big part of living life as a Jewish person and although we don't have the Beit HaMikdash today when we once again go back to the Beit HaMikdash they will once again become a part of the service of God. Ramban writes something that I thought was very beautiful. He writes that when a person comes to do a korban so we know there's a halakha that a person has to do the ya'do arosh ha'olah. If you put your hands on the head of the, uh, of the animal, and before this, the whole the situation of the sacrifice begins, the person leans on the animal. He's supposed to even put some of his weight into this leaning on top of the animal. And the concept, Ramban explains as follows. He says that it doesn't really make sense that you should do a sin in isolation. And now, this animal, you know, goes to Shamaim, and because of that, now you get kapara. What's the connection between those two things? You know, why is that relevant? That this animal was brought as a a sacrifice, and now, you know, the kohen eats a piece, or you eat a piece, or no one eats a piece, and all of a sudden, you get kapara. So Ramban says that when a person leans on the animal, when a person sees this process unfold in front of him, he thinks to himself, where she thinks to herself, you know, this really, because of the things that I've done, my mistakes, really this should be me. And the process that they see, that the animal itself goes to the Mizbeach and ascends, so to speak, in the, in, in, uh, in the process of bringing the Korban, that allows the person to reflect and think, if I owe my life to Boré Olam, and this is what I did with the life that he gave me, do I really deserve even the life that I've been given? Maybe Bureo Olam, so to speak, should take back the life that he granted me if this is how I'm living it, with the mistakes that I'm committing, mistakes that... And the person, in that thought process of Teshuvah, as they lean on the animal, effectively the weight of the sin is transferred to this animal, because mentally he is doing so. And this gave me such an insight. This concept from Ramban gave me such a beautiful insight into what it is that we're doing here with this entire system, called Judaism. I want to give you a mashal that I saw brought down, a beautiful mashal. Imagine this guy uh, decides he's going to build a brand new house. Uh, he buys himself a lot and deal in Brooklyn. He calls a contractor and he tells the contractor, listen, I want a house, I want seven rooms, beautiful, I want, uh, what is this called, Viennese, uh, what is it called? Venetian plaster, right? I want a very fancy item, I want uh, st- I want this, all of this, the sinks. All of the faucets should be made of uh, gold, and I want the, the door handles to be made out of platinum. And you know, anyway, they come up with the price. What's the price for this magnificent house? Three floors, ten bedrooms, right? What's the what's the price? They call, they close on a price together with all of the you know all the beautiful uh, you know finishings that that, that a beautiful home uh, palace could have, and they finish, and the price comes out to three point seven million dollars. Anyway, the guy goes to his friends. Sorry? The guy goes to his friends. He says, Look at what a good deal I got. I closed. I told the guy, I want all the best finishings. I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this. 3.7, they all say to him, Impossible. A house like that, finished like that, you know, costs much more. Impossible. No way. Make sure that the guy is not sketching you. Like, you, you, you know, don't make sure, don't let him bring you any, say, you know, a, a faucet from Home Depot. Don't let him get you the pipes from, uh, you know, from Mabarev. You know, specify every item. The guy goes through and he writes a list, Excel sheet, every item he writes it down exactly as he wants it, what it should be made out of, which material, where the guy should buy it from, full long list. He brings it to the contractor, the contractor looks down the list, he says, absolutely, no problem exactly same price right same price you got it my friends my friends after a month the guy comes to the, to the owner of the house and he says he holds the key he says "Rohi, here's the key payday 3.7 you gotta pay me the guy says it took you one month to build the house he says come they get in the car they drive down to deal they get to the lot and they're sitting on the lot are 12 gold faucets on the floor. 16, you know, uh, Venetian plaster walls lying on the floor. On top of the Venetian plaster, he's got six bathtubs with spa jets unhooked up to anything. A giant pile of materials there, and the keys that he's holding in his hand goes to a super special Pladelet lock, which is lying also next to the door. <clears throat> the guy says to the contra, he says, Are you crazy? He says, look, you gave me a checklist. Let's go. Show me something that's not here. The guy says, I didn't, hire, uh, I didn't hire someone to buy me this stuff. You're a contractor. I hired you to build it. I hired you to install it. Where's my house? I don't need a pile of goods on the floor. Are you out of your mind. My friends. You look at this contractor, you think the guy has a couple of screws loose. Literally, because they're on the floor. But the point here is that this fellow, this contractor that we all think is nuts, in many ways, is all of us when it comes to Judaism. Boréo Olam says, I'm sending you down to this world to build something beautiful. To create a masterpiece. To build a family. To create a, sense, a, a set of values. To uh, influence the people around you. And we come to Boré Olam after only one month, you know. At the end of our lives, we're like, shoof, here's the checklist. I went to Shaharit 64,000 times in my life. Look at how many amans I answered. I got exactly the faucets that you wanted. And Boré Olam says, it can't be. Really? I'm sh- show me. They go back to the videotape and they see the lot. And all the goods are there. But you didn't build anything. A person could go through the motions of bringing a Korban, but not actually come close to Borei Olam in any way. You know when you see this? When you see someone who you you assume is a very religious person, and then you meet them in a business context, and the guy's a thief. Guy has all, he looks, he looks the part, but you see the way he speaks to other people. The lack of derech eretz. How could it be that someone is so religious, and he doesn't have derech eretz, how could that be? You know what the answer is? It's not because he's a sketch and didn't go to Shaharit. He went to Shaharit. It's not because he didn't go to Mirha, didn't go to Abi, didn't learn the Daph he did it all. But somewhere along the line, there was a disconnect between all the things that you do and all of the things that you're supposed to become. Now, this is not just a disease that affects people that look religious. It's a disease and a malady that affects not only all Jews, but the entire world. You know, sometimes you meet people, and it's just something actually I realized um, when I moved to New York. You know, New Yorkers are rough around the edges, shall we say? Okay. You know, you get in there, you're on the, you know, on the train, the guy's staring you down. You know, you you, you, you know. And I realized after a little while, right? You, you don't make eye contact on the train with a stranger in New York City, because the guy, what are you looking at? What are you doing? Huh? Right? <laughs> the they, they guy mugs you, okay? Mm-hmm. I realized, when I lived in England, also you didn't make eye contact on the train, right? But for a very different reason. In England, no one says anything to anybody. Everything is very polite, everything is you know, very genteel. But then over here, the same guy that yells at you, afterwards gives you directions. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, it's an interesting thing. So I realized a lot of people in New York are rougher around the edges, but, and they're not so polite, but actually they, may, they might be quite helpful. And on my experience on the tube, and, you know, they were very genteel, very polite, but maybe not necessarily so nice. How could you be, ever met people like this? And again, not, not, this is not a castigation of people in England. There were a lot of very, very nice people in England. But the fact that being polite could sometimes be disconnected from being nice. And you have people who won't say thank you, please, good morning, good evening, how are you doing? How are the parents? They don't have that, but they're willing to work so hard for you. These policemen, uh, firefighters that you meet in, in New York City, there's no chit chat, but they're, they're there for you. But then you have all these people that they suck, but you know, and then when it comes to it, not my problem. Polite and nice are supposed to be connected. Otherwise, you have a sink faucet that's not connected to the plumbing, right? It's lying on the ground. My friends, this is true in so many different ways for so many different people. And I want to just share with you something magnificent about this concept of sacrifice. You know, there was a, uh, a great rabbi who lived, uh, his name was, um, I'm blanking now on his name. When I remember it, I'll let you know, okay? Um, I think his name was Rav Chaim Hirsch. I'll double check. Anyway, this Rav Chaim at the time he was in one of the, the uh, work camps in Russia. You know, when they used to stick all these people in camps uh, to re-educate them because they were practicing religion in a, in a country that believed in communism and atheism. If they caught you, you know, doing anything Jewish, they would send you to, to the freezing temperatures of Siberia, you know, to, get it, to knock that Judaism out of you, to get you so cold that you lost that, that Jewish warmth. Anyway, this one guy... He managed to sneak with him into the work camp that's meant to strip him of Judaism. He managed to sneak in a pair of tefillin. Okay? What does he do with the tefillin? They're very small tefillin. He keeps them on his person at all times. Straps them to his leg underneath his clothing. Now, his job in the camp was to be a messenger boy... From one camp to the next, every time the guards needed to go, needed to say something, needed to get something, he was the guy that they would send. So all day long, seven days a week, even Shabbat, any morning, any night, all they did, they sent them from place to place, uh, what's it called, on these missions. Had they used to bring his tefillin with him, even on Shabbat, because if they discovered his tefillin, if they found it, they'd track him down, and it would be the end of him. Okay? So it's pikuach nefesh. Anyway, one day, the guy is, uh, is walking on his, uh, on, uh, from camp to camp on a mission and he sees that there's a guy hiding in the forest, he's swaying and he's singing very beautifully the songs of Shabbat. It's a Breslov guy, his name is Nachman obviously, right? He sees the guy and he's singing so beautifully one of the Ashkenaz songs uh, uh, for Shabbat. Okay? I would sing it here, but no one would recognize it. Either way, the point is. So he's singing so beautifully. The guy walks into the forest. He says, uh, "He says this is Sona Shabbat Shalom, Good Shabbos." The guy says, "What are you talking about?" He doesn't know who he is. Doesn't know that he's Jewish. He says, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "You were just singing." He says, "Yes, I was singing." He says, "So Good Shabbos." He says, "I know what you're talking about." I'm not Jewish. He's scared. No, he is Jewish. The guy's Jewish, but he's scared that the other guy's gonna rat him out. He says, What do you mean you don't know what I'm talking about? You were just singing Shabbat songs. You were singing if you were singing, right? The guy, he's terrified. So he keeps denying. He says, don't, You don't have to be afraid. He says, I'm also Jewish. He didn't believe him. He says, Look, I'm speaking to you in Yiddish. Right? Kipi, I'm like Yosef Asadiq says to his brothers. Listen to my voice, I'm speaking Lashon Kodesh, Yosef says. But the guy says, he was still afraid because at the time you had Jewish defectors, people that sold out to communism that wanted to try and put down their own brothers and sisters. So Yiddish wasn't a proof, so he doesn't believe him. He says, I promise you I'm Jewish, he goes, I I even have my tefillin with me, it's on Shabbat. He says, what are you talking about? He rolls up his pants leg underneath his thing. He's got on his leg strapped is the tefillin. This Breslov guy on the spot starts crying. He says, tefillin? He says, I've been in this camp for 15 years. I haven't put on tefillin. I haven't seen tefillin. I managed to get a little short time to leave the camp today, you know, and I used the time to come out and try and feel again like I was at a Shabbat table, like I was connected with my family. With my, uh, with my religion, with my Judaism. I don't have a meal, I don't have anything, but I have my Shabbat songs. The man felt uh, terrible. He says, listen, I see you really want, anytime you want to come put them on, he says, you're more than welcome. I'm in this in this camp, this in this barracks. Fadal. Anyway, guy goes, walks, does, finishes his mission, goes back, goes back to sleep. Goes back to his bunkhouse, goes to sleep first thing in the morning it's not even yet uh what's it called dawn alot there's someone tapping him on the shoulder he picks the blanket off of his head right he looks up who's there Ravchaim looks at the sky it's nachman from the forest he says i snuck here as quickly as i could any minute now it's going to be uh the time for tefillin he goes please can i put on the tefillin he can't believe the guy got in the next day, Sunday morning, right? He says, okay, so you got it. He gets out of bed. The other guy gets into his bed under the covers. He puts the tefillin on underneath the covers. Says shema, says amida, lying down under the covers. Tears in his eyes, he takes the covers off. He gives him back the tefillin. The guy puts it back on his, uh, under, on, under, on his leg underneath his, uh, his thing. And, uh, and, and he leaves. This guy goes his way, the other guy goes uh, to, to work. Now it's still very early, and the man, this rabbi of Chaim with the Tefillin, he walks past on his way to the officer's quarters to get his, jo- his, uh, his job for the day. He walks past the guard, and he sees the guard of the front gate. is sitting and eating breakfast, eating uh, his bread, whatever with the, that he's got there. And he realizes to himself, Shema Israel, they haven't served breakfast yet. If the guard's already eating, Whose food is that? Nachman's. That's how he got in the camp. He bribed the officer to let him come in by giving him the one slice of bread that he got that day. Unbelievable. He goes about his day, he eats breakfast, this, that, goes back to sleep. The next morning, tapping him on the shoulder, looks up, who is it? Nachman, again the scene repeats itself. Again he walks out, again he sees the guard. Rav Chaim never saw Nachman again. But what he does know about this man that he met in the forest was that he found out on Shabbat that he had tefillin, and then Sunday and Monday Nachman went without food in order to be able to put tefillin on. The end of the story, I don't know. But look at what it means to a Jewish person: Adam ki mikem korban a lot of us, we put tefillin on, we're ticking a box. I got to put tefillin on today. You know? I got to put him on. I got to pray. I got to do this. I got to go to shul. I got to give sadaqah. How much ma'aser? Does this count? I got to matzah. I got to shake a I got to go think. Oh, am I patur? Okay, anyway, it's patur. Okay, I don't have to do it. We're so invested. And the biggest shame in the world is, I always say this to myself, how many Jewish people put in so much... To do Judaism, and they're going to get to Shamayim, and Hashem is going to be like on all the things that they did. It's just going to be a big pile of stuff on the floor, and they built nothing. Rabotai, what's the difference between a Jew that does a lot of different mitzvot, and someone that built something beautiful, that built a mishkan, for hakadosh baruchu, that built a bet ha that built a Jewish home, what's the difference? This is the key, my friends. The key is in understanding where everything fits. To buy this stuff, you order it on Amazon. But the difference between a person who buys stuff and a person who builds something is a person who understands where each thing goes. What the place of each thing is in his life. So when I'm coming to pray, where does that sit in in the life of a human being? What is the process of prayer supposed to achieve? If all it is is getting you stuff, then it's just perpetuating another day of another lost and misguided life. But if the process of prayer, when I come into Beth Knesset, is to humble myself before God, is to pray to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to understand that without His kindness, I can't live, that's a very different prayer. To thank Hashem for yesterday, to pray for today, and to hope for tomorrow. That's what a person's supposed to be doing when they come to pray. When they give sidakah, it's not that I owe this money from ma'aseh, hey, let me give it. I have to get rid of it. It's on my books, here you go. But to think to themselves, Boreh Olam created this world with kindness. I, as one of his children, am trying to emulate just like my dad does. I'm a rabbi in a synagogue, I'm a rabbi in the community, and so many times in my life, I think to myself, what would my father have done? How would my father have responded? I try and act in the way that my father was a very great man, as how he would, how he would have acted. But Borei uh, Olam is all of our fathers. To think to yourself when you see a poor person, how would my father act? And we know the answer, because we say it in tefillah, Think when you're giving a dollar to someone, God, I'm doing your work. This is me fulfilling your wish in the world. And to think to yourself for one second when you're giving that act of Siddakah that when that guy, that poor man prayed, Hashem said, Absolutely, no problem. I got you today. I'm sending Rafi Hasbani. Think that that's what your dollar is. That's Bore Olam sending this person. You're suddenly attached to a system. Your resides somewhere. The same thing with the chinuch of our children. When we raise our children, not only are we raising kids, but we're building a team. You know, the patriots just went out and they spent a stupid amount of money. Why? Because Bill Belichick in his life Never had a season as bad as this one, Aziz. Okay, he lost Tom Brady. Everyone thought Belichick is going to build back uh, better Ya'ani Biden style, right? And look at what happened. Aziz. the guy he lost, won everything. And this guy, Bill Belichick, left holding the bag. They spent more money in one day in their free, in their uh, play acquisitions than the guy spent, I don't know in how long, okay? Could you imagine for a second spending all that money getting all those players and then not knowing that this defensive back goes in that position, just telling everybody, you know, guys, okay, line up wherever you want. Who wants to be quarterback today? You know, who wants to block that? You have this really fast guy, small, sitting in front of the, you know, 300 pound. He'll get eaten alive. Every person on that roster, you spent all that money for. They have a specific mission to fill, to be able to build a championship team. Rabotai, we were signed on God's team. He paid a lot of money, invested a lot of money in each and every one of us, in our wisdom, in our kindness, in our misirut nefesh, all the things that he put into building this unbelievable team to go out into this world and to have a winning season. Are we turning the tide in the world to make it a kinder place, to make it a place that is more godlike? That's what God, or are we gonna be the giants of two years ago, two and 14, couple of wins here and there, but we're just losing on every front. Each of us has a role to play to be able to do that. And the mitzvot, they allow us to be able to put up good numbers to change the lives of our families, of our communities, and the world around us. Baruch Adonai Amen.